Hey folks, Chris from The Bike Shed here with just a quick announcement before we jump into this episode. ThoughtBot is hiring, and I think you should apply. More specifically, we're hiring for a range of developer positions, including Rails, Elixir, and React Native, across our offices in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, Raleigh, and London. ThoughtBot offers great benefits and time off, and we're truly serious about sustainable pace and making sure folks have time for life outside of work. That said, I think something that makes ThoughtBot stand out is that we focus just as much on making our work pace sustainable as well. You may have heard us talk about it a bit on the show, but at ThoughtBot, we work on client projects four days a week, and then we take Fridays to work on internal projects, learn new technologies, and work on open source. I can't say enough good things about having this time be part of our weekly schedule and making sure we have room for growth as individuals and as a team. Now, if you're concerned that your skills are not quite where they need to be, we also have an apprentice program, which is a paid three-month position with benefits, where you'll be paired with three different ThoughtBot mentors over the three months to help round out your skills and learn the ropes. Many of our apprentices have gone on to join ThoughtBot full-time, so this is a great option if you're newer to the world of being a developer but still interested in possibly working at ThoughtBot. I've personally worked at ThoughtBot for almost six years, and I can't imagine working anywhere else. So if you think you might be interested in working with me or any of the other great ThoughtBotters I've been chatting with for the past few episodes, head on over to thoughtbot.com jobs and let us know. So very similar to the weekly iteration stuff that I used to do. All right. Um, Hopefully I don't mess up and say weekly iteration. I mean, you don't need to say anything. I'll say bike shed. You don't ever need to I'm say bike shed. I'm happy to be on the weekly iteration. Like, I'm happy I'm a fan to be iterating weekly. Um, not I've been strong. watching the videos. These are for strong years. iterations, not weak iterations, Joel. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. Today, I'm joined by Joel Kenville, developer here in our Boston office, and Elm Aficionado. Thanks so much for joining us, Joel. Thanks for having me on the show. So uh, what have you been up to lately? What are you working on client-wise? We just recently did uh, an Elm 018 to 019 upgrade. So this was a client project that was in the middle of development, and Mm then 019 dropped. And it was at a good place where we decided to make that transition maybe a week or two after the, the release came out. How was the experience of upgrading? The upgrade was actually very simple, very smooth. On the Elm side of things, I also had some Webpack set up around it. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the majority of my time was spent fighting Webpack. I just spoke with someone on a recent episode of The Bike Shed about Webpack and the way it integrates. And it doesn't actually doesn't match my mental model of how this should all work. Like Webpack is enough of a different thing that I feel like if we're going to do that, maybe we just break it out entirely. And I've heard... Actually, there are probably many people that just have a great experience with it, but I've heard from a number of people that they spend time fighting Webpack, and because it's wrapped up and hidden, they have less access to configure things as they want, and that there are headaches inherent to that. In our case, we were also integrating with Rails via the Webpacker gem, mm-hmm. which also does its own sort of hidden things. Right. In yeah, that was specifically what I was... It uh, was stripping away some configuration options that we were trying to set. Was it silently stripping them away? It was taking a sub-configuration hash that we were defining and embedding it into a larger configuration hash. Mm-hmm. But all the Webpack documentation tells you to write it in that larger syntax. Mm-hmm. And so anytime I would try to write the whole thing, it would just crash with cryptic errors. Oh, no fun at all. But glad to hear that you were able to make it to the far side. And uh, there's one particular feature of the... 019 release of Elm that stood out to me, which was some of the 
tree shaking, I don't know if that's actually the right term, but the bundle size minimization by dead code elimination, which sounds spectacular. Sounds like they've finally sort of achieved the dream of we have a statically analyzable program, we can do this, we're going to rip out anything you don't need. And as far as I understand it, drastically reduce bundle sizes going from 018 to 019. Yes, yes. Uh, the beauty of it is that it is uh, on a function level. Mm -hmm. So even if you're importing a module that has 100 functions in it, if you only call one of those 100 functions, then only that function will get compiled into the final executable. That is the dream. I remember looking at Elm years back or maybe a year ago, but I was surprised that the size of the bundle was as large as it was and that the Elm runtime was bringing so much along for the party. I was like, I feel like if anyone should know, it's Elm. Elm should know the answers to this. You're the only one who can like do the math. Everybody else has to worry about side effects. But it seems like it was just, it was always planned that that would happen, but they finally uh, got to the place that they were able to do that. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, do you know anecdotally what the actual size change in your bundle was related from? I did not run the numbers, oh, so man, you I gotta run know. the numbers. There's also a production mode for compilation that does a lot of extra optimizations now, mm -hmm. and so your production bundle is going to be even smaller. Uh, I'm not sure how much of the dead code elimination happens on the development level. Gotcha. Do you happen to know if uh, the Google Closure compiler is used as well? Or is it just No, Elm? it is not used. Okay. You can use uh, other minification tools afterwards. And if you tell it what the pure functions are, there it can do some even more aggressive minification. But that's all happening within the Elm compiler pipeline. Yeah, so the Elm compiler does a lot for you, but then you can also pipe that output into another minification step oh, using something like Uglifier. Gotcha. I imagine my understanding with the, the Clojure compiler is you have to write your code in such a way that it is Clojure compiler compliant. Um, not yes, every piece of JavaScript the, can go into it. It's for the advanced options, mm -hmm. which allows even more aggressive compiling. Yep. Uh, it has to be done in a certain way. And historically, Elm's compiled JavaScript was not compatible with the advanced Google Clojure compiler mode. Is it now? Sounds like you're I'm not sure if it is or not. My guess is there's less utility than in other worlds, though, because if Elm is able to just do this work of teasing out the dead code, then there's less that the closure compiler is going to be able to do, less um, additional gains to be made. But there's also the complexity of being able to run it. The only context that I've actually used it in is in a Scala JS project, and with Scala, you're inherently working on the JVM to start. So Google Closure Compiler is a, a Java program. So it will run, that's fine, because you already have to have a JVM around anyway. But with Elm, you do not need that. Elm is its own static binary, right? There's no need for Haskell in order to run it. Correct. Okay. If you're developing Elm, you'll write Haskell code to do the that. The compiler is written in Haskell. Hmm. But you can either install it as a standalone thing. You can install it on macOS via Homebrew, or you can install it as an NPM package. Makes sense. Seems good. Yeah, you don't want to have all that overhead the whole time. So I think that was one thing that stood out to me about the 018-019 transition. One other thing was a, I would say, a more interesting, a choice that was made by the maintainers to remove custom operators. So uh, to explain that for anyone in the audience who's not familiar, anything like the plus symbol is an operator in most languages. And there are certain ones that are predefined. And then in languages like Elm, you can define your own. And this is used for basically making DSLs in most cases so that you can write code that looks like the thing that you want. So for instance, in URL parsers, you can have a slash to represent a certain you know, segment of the URL, and that happens to be a custom operator that you've defined. 
but they removed them. They removed support for custom operators entirely in 019. So first was my summary of the reality correct, Joel? And secondly, what are your thoughts on that matter? Yeah, so these are specifically user-defined operators. Right. Uh, obviously, the plus symbol is still there in the language. Yeah, probably here to stay, is my guess. Uh, and then some of the core packages that also have operators in them are also keeping those. In general, uh, Elm has historically has been pushing people away from operators just as a code design choice. Mm-hmm. I think Haskell is kind of notorious for going the other way, where everything is a custom operator and they're very complex and cryptic. Yep, it's all just punctuation. Right. You just rotate the punctuation until you get one that works. So their Elm has a very a small core of sort of built-in operators that we use, but everything else generally it tries to push you in the direction of using an actual named function mm-hmm. for it. Uh, it generally reads better to most people who are not familiar with the domain of what you're working on, with the exception generally being math, where math as its own domain is using operators and punctuation to refer to things. Right. So that describes the what of the situation. But I'm intrigued as to your thoughts on both the the purposeful decision that was made by, I think, largely Evan, who is the creator and maintainer of Elm, but also the choice that was made, as well as the fact that it was done as a breaking change, transitioning between two different versions, and a pretty, I'm guessing, sizable breaking change for certain code bases. So what do you what do you think about both the the like curated nature of the language and then the point that this transition was introduced? I think I had some bad experiences with operators pretty early on in Haskell uh, when I was trying to learn that language, and so I've personally tended to stay away from them in Elm. And also, it was sort of an official design recommendation, so that change didn't affect any of my code because I wasn't personally using custom operators. I know some people use them more heavily, although they're definitely not as predominant as they are in, say, Haskell. But yeah, some people had to change some of their code to work with named functions now instead of using operators. I think the change is not that drastic for most people, though. It's interesting to contrast it, though, with like JavaScript has zero breaking changes, basically, as a rule. And that language has just been growing, essentially, over time. And then you see certain variants of it that people are trying to actually constrain it back down. And like ESLint forces us into, well, we don't even use double equals ever because it lies. It's just lies all the way down. As an aside, did you see the Minesweeper for JavaScript equality? I did see that. Yes, we'll have to link that in the show notes. But a wonderful example of JavaScript uh, equality dangers. But at this point, I think most people just don't even use double equals in that world. That's very strongly encouraged by every ESLint configuration that I've ever seen. But JavaScript as a language is very purposeful about having no breaking changes. JavaScript is also managed by a committee, and Elm is managed by a person, largely. They feel very different, I will say. Yes, I feel like designed by committee is often sort of just adding new things that are least common denominator, things that everyone can agree on. And it's very hard to agree to remove something. And also at the phase of life where JavaScript is, it's much harder to remove features. Much larger installation base and things that are sitting and running. And I guess because JavaScript is the target that Elm compiles to, they can potentially be a little less conservative in their breaking changes because they're still emitting ES3, ES5. I'm not sure which they target or if that's an option. But either way, they're targeting a JavaScript variant that will continue to be supported by virtue of that ecosystem. Correct. The, the main difference is which version of the compiler do you use to compile it? 
So it's less of a, this code is out there in the wild. And that's, I guess, an advantage of compiled languages, maybe, uh, as far as the versioning goes, is that because you don't distribute the actual source code the way you would with a uh, interpreted language, you distribute the compiled code, then you can make changes to the language that gets compiled. And as long as whoever is distributing it has the correct compiler, Mm. they can just keep distributing things. And breaking changes don't affect end users. They only affect the developers who now need to make sure they have the right compiler version. Right. I think this is sort of the dream of like Java's bytecode that, as far as I understand it, is a very stable format, very well understood. Uh, And then the surrounding language ecosystem with Clojure and Java and Scala and the handful of other languages that target JVM bytecode, they're able to do so in in a sane way moving forward. Uh, And similarly, maybe someday we'll all be able to use the WebAssembly and have that be our common bytecode for the web. We'll see. We'll figure that one out soon. I think it was very interesting to read Evan's summary document about that particular change and seeing just how communication happens within that community. I think the Elm community is a very friendly, very supportive one. And I think Evan does lead strongly. He you know, has opinions and he follows through on them. But at the same time, I think the nature of discourse within the Elm community has always looked to be very pleasant from my, my viewpoint. Yes, it's definitely a very sort of curated experience as opposed to trying to say we want everyone's features to make everyone happy. Evan takes the time to try to gather the use cases, try to understand what is the actual problem everyone's trying to solve. What is the simplest way that we can do this? How can we do this in a way that's cohesive with the rest of the language design? And then realizing what Elm itself wants to be. It's not trying to be the ultimate language for everyone. And so it's made certain design choices that make it better in some ways, but mean that you don't have certain features that some users might want. And so some developers come from the Haskell community and they want certain Haskell power features that aren't present in Elm. And if those are absolute requirements, Elm is not the solution that they need for their problem. But for the problem that Elm is designed to solve, Evan's done a really good job of focusing it on that and even to the point of refining his design and removing elements that were added earlier. Yeah, it's, uh, I would say, incredibly rare to see features removed from a programming language in different releases. And granted, it's 0.19 at this point, so it is still uh, beta, I guess, the way you would describe that, or it still hasn't achieved 1.0. Correct. Uh, although it's very stable, and there are plenty of things in production running on it. So oh, I wonder if they'll do the, the rake slash react thing where they just jump to version 20. I'm not sure what the plan 0. is there. 0.19, next release, 20.0. I hope so. Those are always fun. I don't actually hope so. I think they should go to one out. But yeah, I think what you were just saying there about the curation of the community and the purposeful, not designed by committee, but instead design with intent and purpose and even removal of features at time is very interesting. But I think it's also interesting that the Elm community does seem to just be kind of nice. They are nice people. The nature of discourse, as far as I've seen it, is largely um, friendly and welcoming. And this is sort of contrasted by, uh, there was some news this week where Linus Torvalds of the Linux Foundation uh, has taken a break. He has stepped back and said, I need to uh, work on me and figure out how to better interact with the community, which is a real surprise because Linus has been going for a long time and has long been sort of the archetypal example of kind of mean actually reasonably mean in some cases and unnecessarily so, but, you know, get stuff done. So 
maybe it's okay. But now finally Linus himself has said, like, I have a problem. I need to work on this. This is not okay. Did you see all of that going down? And Yes, I've seen conversations about that. Uh, I've seen people who uh, say that they're concerned that this new sort of softer Linus is going to affect code quality, where they think that because he can't leave mean comments anymore, it means that he's not going to be as rigorous with code quality. Yeah, I just don't. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe that this will be an issue. I think this will be a deeply positive thing overall. There's actually, interestingly, there's something that I saw Linus wrote a while back, or it was a, a framing of his particular brand of being complicated on the internet, which is he has a sharp edge when it comes to working with the core team of people that he works with on Linux. But when it's anyone that's new, when it's their first patch, things like that, not only is he, as far as I can tell, more welcoming and, and pleasant, but he's very clear when directing others that there's no room for being unkind and anything less than kind to folks that are new, like when he's talking to his team, which I found very interesting that he always had like the line of, this is where I get to be mean now. Uh, and it's the team that he works with most closely. But yeah, I think this is a, a wonderful move. And I think that like public recognition of him saying, I, I recognize that this is a thing and that I need to work on this because he's been such a public figure that is kind of a jerk, gets very meaningful things done, but also kind of a jerk. And time will tell, but I'm pretty sure the Linux Foundation is going to be better for this when he comes back and when there's you know more pleasant conversation and things like that. I was recently having a conversation uh, with someone on a, a similar topic, and they mentioned that when people say they care about being brutally honest, they care more about the brutal part than the honest part. <laughs> yes, that, that sounds true. There's uh, the phrase radical candor. Have you heard that one? I have, yes. And I feel like that is intended to be the like inverse of brutal honesty. It's radical. <laughs> radical candor is the inverse of brutal honesty. I don't know if that's true, but that's my take on it, is it's meant to be an empathetic version of brutal honesty. It's not just meant to be brutal. <laughs> right, but. right. I think in many cases, the sort of empathetic way of communication is actually more direct and actually uh, does a better job addressing quality issues than a brutally honest approach. So comments like, this is bad, or I hate this code. They make a value judgment, but they bring absolutely nothing to help improve the code. But actually talking about the trade-offs and the intricacies of the code rather than just making angry value judgments, mm -hmm. either about the person, which is horribly bad, but even about the code itself. If we can have conversations about, oh, well, we might prefer composition here versus inheritance, or we might want to make sure there's less coupling here. And then you can have a conversation about why more or less coupling is a good or bad thing and what are the trade-offs involved. So maybe it makes the code more extensible, but it also causes you to have more configuration or more objects to combine together. And then which one is the best choice for the current scenario? And now we've had a productive conversation that improved the code, whichever decision we ended up taking. Absolutely. And this will be one of the many times that we'll reference it. But if anyone hasn't checked it out, Derek Pryor, former host of the Bike Sheds uh, talk on building a culture of code review is a great summary of a lot of these sort of ideas. And I think largely the way that we think about and practice code review here at ThoughtBot, which is probably pretty stark in contrast to Linus's approach to code review. But again, I, I think kudos to Linus for actually stepping back and, and having this realization and taking some time to work on something that is significantly a problem. So 
It's probably also worth uh, linking to the, the ThoughtBot code review guidelines that we have. These are sort of our own guidelines for how we review code for each other, but the guidelines are public, and so anyone can go and take a look at that and you know, use it for your own uh, code as well if you want. Absolutely. We can link all those things up. So I, I want to come back to Elm for a little bit and talk about, uh, well, really, anything you want to talk about in the world of Elm. But the one question I'll ask, and we'll see where this takes us, is there's been a theme, particularly that I've seen you and a few others talking about, the idea of making impossible states impossible and encoding the domain into the type system, I would say, is probably the best way to go about that. So can you talk a little bit about that and sort of your thoughts on it? Sure. One of the early languages I got introduced to was C++. And I feel like the type system there wasn't particularly exciting. And maybe I didn't get advanced enough to get meaningful value out of the type system. But when I transitioned from C++ over to Ruby, I didn't feel like I was losing anything. In fact, I felt like I was gaining freedom. Mm. And again, that could be because I didn't have enough advanced C++ or I wasn't at a place in my career where I could see the value. So for many years, I was entirely working on dynamic languages and thinking this was completely fine. And then I sort of jumped, dabbled a little bit with Haskell and got into Elm and started seeing the really nice things that you can do with type systems. And I think particularly Elm's custom types, which are what Haskell people would call algebraic data types, offer some very strong modeling, data modeling capabilities that because the compiler now knows about your data modeling, it can then enforce certain business rules at compile time and tell you if you're trying to violate them. Right. And so one particular way this manifests is by using different types, you can actually build your system in such a way that impossible states cannot be represented by the program and therefore they're guaranteed to not exist. So the one that comes to mind is the HTTP result. I think I'm speaking about this correctly. Mm -hmm. The one where it's the four different states of unfetched, loading, error, or okay, whatever the loaded state is where you have data. And so the loaded then version would have the data associated, but the others are representations of the different states. So there's no such thing as unfetched with data. Those, Correct. That, that state of your system can never be represented in the type, and therefore there's no way that we will ever have to deal with that or have the bug where it's like, wait, how is this both unfetched and there's still some data? Oh, uh, we loaded it from local storage. We forgot that we left it over from last time, and here's this bug that came up. But I think you gave a talk today, actually. We had a lunch and learn, and you gave a talk about maybe and sort of pushing through the different levels of how we can model our system using maybe and getting to those algebraic data types. Yes. So languages that don't have something like Elms maybe that use, like Ruby uses nil, JavaScript uses null, many languages have null. And whether or not they have a type system, almost all of them will allow any value to be null at any time. So even if you Scary. have a type system and say the argument to this function is a string, it can also be JK, it's a null. <laughs> Because null is a string, and null is also an integer, and null is a member of all the types. So unless you check every argument, every parameter, every return value all the time, there is a possibility that you will get a null in a place where you don't expect. And there are various techniques that we can use to avoid that in object-oriented programming. Uh, we'll often try to avoid null altogether by trying to use things like value objects or null objects. Funny that null objects are a solution to null, but they right. are. 
we'll also try to push the uncertainty to the edges of our system. Avdi Grimm has a book uh, called Confident Ruby, which really emphasizes the technique. But you have to sort of take it on faith to a certain extent, where you say, because most uncertainty comes from the inputs, so either user input or input from other systems where you've gotten values from an API that you don't trust, those have to be checked for presence. And so you would check those around the edges of your system, but then every other function inside your system can assume that it's dealing with data that is present. Uh, We don't have anything to enforce that, but if we are disciplined, we can almost create like a ring of protection around the core of our program where business logic lives in this happy, confident world where there are no nulls. Or we can pay a compiler to be disciplined for us. Yes. Well, that's where uh, something like Elm's maybe type comes in. Other languages also have this concept. Some name it optional. I think Swift calls it optional. Maybe Rust. Haskell calls it maybe. And a few other languages. But the idea is it sort of flips the problem of null on its head. Whereas in, say, Ruby or JavaScript, an argument that's said to be a string could also be null. And so anything that has not immediately just been checked something that's not been proven to be not null could possibly be null. Whereas in Elm, it's the opposite. If the type signature for your function says that the argument is a string, it cannot be anything other than a string. It can't be null. It can't be maybe. The only thing that value will ever be is a string. Right. And I think an example of where this might be useful in, say, a Rails context is when we call find on any active record objects, Uh, Actually, find is one that will handle this properly. But if we do find by email, that may return nil. So it's either going to return the user or nil. And that difference turns out to be very important. So in a context like Elm where we have maybe, we would be returned a maybe user. And that the value for that can either be nothing if we didn't find a user or it's just that user. And so it's wrapped up in this context. And therefore, anywhere that we want to interact with the value that we're getting from that database call we have to handle the possibility that it will be null. And we can't ignore that because it is inherent to the type. Yes. An important distinction there is that in Ruby, if we find a user that's maybe nil or just a user, we can pass that into another method that wants a user as an argument. Whereas in Elm, if I say a function takes a user as an argument, I cannot pass a maybe user into there. I have to first do a null check and then optionally pass a user into a function I can't just pass the maybe in because the compiler won't accept that. Yep. So what you can do is then take the same sort of confident code approach that Avdi suggests, but then get some compilation guarantees around that where you can say, okay, all of these business functions are written and none of their signatures contain maybe. They're all guaranteed to be present. And then all around the edges of the system, everything deals with maybe, but then calls out to these confident business functions where necessary. So we can use the types to prevent uncertainty from coming in from outside the system. But oftentimes as programmers, we intentionally introduce it. The classic case is trying to use nil and Ruby to represent not necessarily the absence of a user, but rather a user who's not been signed in, a guest user. And Sandy Metz has uh, a great talk on the on the topic. Uh, I believe it's called Nothing is Something, about this idea that sometimes nil actually has multiple different meanings in your system. And 
if it means something other than value not present, you probably want some custom object to represent that. And we can do the same thing in Elm, just because it has types and that it prevents us from having unexpected values that are, are not present doesn't mean that as programmers, we can't use nothingness as a way to poorly represent another concept that's in our system. Right. We can just make that nothingness more explicit, a, a specific type of nothingness rather than generic, like, I don't know. Uh, I actually, I ran into a particular version of this where I lost a few hours and was very unhappy with the world where I was working with a signed cookie in Rails. And so with signed cookies, you can try and essentially fetch the, the like named value from the cookies. And you might get back the value, which has safely been unsigned and all of those wonderful things, but you might also get nil. So I was getting nil and I was like, what is going on? I know that this value is in there. I was like inspecting the cookies manually. I'm digging this thing apart and I cannot figure it out. And it just keeps giving me back nil, even though I'm certain that it's there. And I'm wondering if it's a weird race condition bug or something like that. I was working between two different systems that were sort of sharing a cookie, which side note, that's a bad idea. But eventually I figured it out and it turns out that the secret key was different between the two apps, which it needs to be shared in order for them both to be able to check the signature of that cookie. And the nil that I was getting in this case was not, we were unable to find this value, but instead it was, the signature did not match, therefore nil. And that silent fusing of two different error states into nil was, to this day, something that I think of very very handshakily and I'm, I lost hours to that and I lost clarity in my system and at that point I was like oh I need a type system that's that's what I feel that was the day that type systems became real for me yeah, the idea that we'd merge the concepts of not present and an error occurred right. so my like in an ideal world with a strong type system and a way to model this I think the return value of that key lookup from a signed cookie would be either data and then the value or like present and the value key not found or signature does not match. One of those three. So we have this some type of those three values. So some type or a product type? Some type. Some type. So those three different possible values, data constructors, representing all of the different cases and discreetly representing them so that my program then elsewhere I'm dealing with it, I can handle those differently. And I don't spend hours staring at a cookie saying, I know that you're in there. It was in there. And I think that's one of the beauties of custom types in Elm where you're able to define data that can be in one of multiple different shapes. So you can say, well, sometimes when it's in this state, it has these two values, but when it's in this other state, it has these other different values. And you can build as many of these as you want, and they don't all have to follow the same shape, as opposed to, say, using objects in Ruby or in in JavaScript, where you're almost more expected to force everything into a single shape for your data, especially in the JavaScript world, plug the holes with not nulls. So if there are a bunch of fields that are only available, say, for a, um, a wizard, and you've got three fields that are added on the first page and three fields that are added on the second page, you have some object that represents all six fields. And you start off with all of them null, and then on the first page, you start filling them in, but all the three ones from the last page are null. And then on the second page, you fill them in again. But that also allows for all sorts of invalid states, like being on the first page and yet we've already filled in the values from the second page, or being on the second page and no values already filled in from the first page. Whereas by saying that we can have different shapes of our data and say, well, 
if I'm in a wizard, I'm either starting the wizard and therefore I have no data, or I'm on page two, in which case I'm guaranteed to have all the values from page one, but may or may not have values from page two yet, or I'm completed, I've filled out both pages and successfully validated everything, and so I'm guaranteed now to have all six values present. And that means that there are only three possible states for your data, as opposed to two to the six. Yep, the combinatoric explosion of nulls. Right, right. Uh, and so thinking of things in terms of combinatorial explosion, you very quickly see is that, that a phrase now. Oh, like. it is definitely a thing. Yeah. <laughs> very quickly shows you how many invalid states you can introduce. I think similarly, we'll see this with Boolean flags or pairs of Boolean flags or trying to do like a three-state Boolean with true, false, nil. But oftentimes, if you want, say, three states, and you try to represent them with two Boolean flags, two Boolean flags is actually, there are two Boolean values, and two of them, two to the two, is four. So there's four possible states, even though you only want to represent three of them. But what if I promise to only ever have it in those three states? Right, right. (laughs) No, we can't trust. It, It feels very similar to me to embracing database constructs. So things like null false on almost all database columns or foreign keys and actually entrusting the database system to keep you honest and keep you to your word and then being able to have that additional confidence that when you're working with the data that the database has managed, it's going to be in the shape that is guaranteed by those sort of constraints that we've applied. The type system and the ability to model your domain and model it in more detail and with more clarity and remove invalid states from it and just make those impossible has that same sort of just like, oh, I feel I feel better now. I feel safe. I feel happy. So I think there's a lot of great stuff in there. Yeah, it's it's wonderful for the safety. It's also wonderful for just the ability to represent in your data structures a structure that actually mirrors the real world problem you're trying to solve. And I think... Part of the reason that I really love Ruby is that it's a very powerful object system for data modeling. And you can do some really beautiful things with that, particularly when it comes around to composition. But Elm's custom types have taken that to the next level for me. An exciting time to be alive. In addition, on this idea of uh, custom types, trying to encode more of your domain logic or information about your domain and the types really helps the compiler become a better assistant for you. It's not just checking numbers now. It can find actual logic bugs for you, which is, is really nice. I found that even things like numbers, I almost never pass around raw numbers anymore. I'll tend to create uh, almost like a lightweight value object to wrap numbers with what kind of quantity they represent. Because, for example, a number of dollars and a number of time are very different quantities. And you probably don't want to be adding $10 plus 10 seconds. That's not really a a math operation that makes sense. But without having the custom types around them, it's something that we could do. And I think as programmers, we tend to be very kind of sloppy with our use of numbers. We throw them around and do random math on them and hope for the best. As opposed to, say, someone who's in physics where, like my intro physics class, I was told, if you don't have the units with your answer, even if the number is right, the answer is going to be marked wrong. The idea that that wouldn't be the way that a physics test is graded is interesting to me. But that, yeah, that makes sense. 
There's a, a corollary actually in, in the world of physics and math that I really enjoyed, which is the idea of, I remember in high school learning, uh, I think it was particularly physics, and my physics teacher was trying to help us and say like, listen, if you ever get scared, or if you're ever looking at a problem and you, you don't know what to do, just start to align the units. Just like, oh, that one's feet over time. So it's distance over time. And this one's an amount of time. And so if you multiply those together, then you get a distance. Okay. And the answer is in dis- that mo- that I must multiply. That's how I do this. And you just start to click together the different units. And somehow you get to the end and you're like, oh, I know how to do this, even though I don't know how to do it. The same sort of thing can apply with types where you can specify the types of your program. So like, well, I, kn- I know I'm starting from a string and then I need to get to a user. And then from there, I need to get to the count of events that they're going to. And from there, I can send the email. So I know that flow of data through. I don't actually know how I'm going to do any of that, but I know that those are essentially the steps, the intermediate types that I'm going to work through. And so you can align those types and define just the type signatures and then from there, I say, all right, now I now I just need to focus on each one of these little pieces, these smaller problems that I've identified. Uh, and there's something really nice, very enjoyable about that as a way to like break a problem down into smaller pieces and then be able to tackle it in those parts. It is, I think, a, a really fantastic way of approaching problem solving. I've heard people describe that as type-driven development. Confusingly with the acronym TDD, but it's fine. <laughs> we'll survive. <laughs> it's an overloaded acronym, but we'll figure out a way. Hey, we brought up Google Closure Compiler earlier, GCC. Right, and that was a terrible idea for a name. They should not have done that. Closure, with a J, uses the Google Closure Compiler with an S. What's going on, everybody? All right, Andrea. Also, the acronym is GCC. Oh, I forgot about that part. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Namespaces, one honking good idea. We should have more of those. That is from the Zen of Python, if anyone is unfamiliar. Yeah, I made a mistake uh, the other day in some code, and I think... Many people have probably made this mistake as well, where you're dealing with time and specifically timestamps. And I had to display time, I think, in seconds. And so I had a number in seconds that I was doing things. But then when I was getting the current time, it was giving it to me in milliseconds. And so I was then doing some math on that. And I think I added seconds to milliseconds and got a really weird answer. I'm pretty sure you're the first one to make that error. That sounds like a rare one. No, I've done that like weekly. Types, man, they would they would help there, I think. That is exactly how I ended up. I couldn't find where I was making that error was the problem. It was a fairly complex uh, program. And so I just started going everywhere and wrapping things in either seconds or milliseconds. So this was an Elm program. And this was an Elm program. And initially you were working with, I guess, integers there? Yes, integers or floats. I forget which one. And then you recognize this. So you now added the, the wrappers around it and then any math needed to be intelligent around those types. Right. So I started gradually adding them, sort of hunting down all the all the numbers and seeing where the compiler complained and then tagging them with the appropriate unit. And then at some point, the compiler was would tell me, hey, you're doing something with milliseconds here when you expected seconds. And I'm like, that is where the error occurred. So it was an interesting approach to using the technique you were describing, but not so much for creating new code as it was for, as a way to hunt bugs in my existing code. Yep push them out. Bugs don't have any place in our programs. Yeah, that's awesome. I always enjoy working in the other languages and then taking that information back. I was working the other night on uh, some Vim script, as one does. I have a conference talk to prepare, so the obvious thing that I'm doing is writing Vim script to make a presentation. Anyway, setting that aside, I had some state that I was trying to manipulate, and as the program is moving forward, it's going to change that state. I'm going to move through different versions. And I noticed this big case statement growing, lots of ifs and nested ifs, 
And then I noticed that I had a bug and it was a bug related to state. I was somehow in an impossible state. And the minute that that happened, my brain was like, I know what to do here. And so I wrote the type signature as it would be in Elm for a sum type of the different states. Uh, and I enumerated those. And then I did my best to force VimScript to try and pretend like it had support for that functionality. But just that, that all I had was the modeling. I had no actual type safety. I have no compiler. But just the idea of modeling and explicitly saying, these are the discrete states of the program. It is invalid to say that I have a location and I'm unstarted. That's not a thing. Unstarted is a null constructor, however we would say that. And it was, it was a wonderful experience. VimScript brings out the worst in me, but I'm glad I was able to let Elm inspire it and uh, make it better. I definitely think Elm has gotten me to think much more about my data structures and just data in general, how I represent things, and taking a little bit of time up front to design data structures in a nicer way can make some of the rest of the program almost write itself. Yeah, I think uh, Elm is great. And I think throughout the office, we've had a lot of great experience with Elm and a lot of interest. And we're actually working on a few client projects right now. So I've been impressed with the uptake of Elm within ThoughtBot and interest to see where it goes and nothing else. I think it's a great inspiration for the work that we're doing in any other language or framework or, or whatever. So yeah, keep on, keep on championing the Elm. That said, I would love to quickly transition over to another topic, which is you recently picked up the mantle of guiding our apprentice program here in Boston. That's correct. Are you excited about that? I think it's a, a really wonderful opportunity I came to ThoughtBot as an apprentice, so I've sort of seen the apprentice side of things. And then over the course of the years, I've been here almost six years now. I've gotten the opportunity to then also mentor a lot of our apprentices. So I've gotten a chance to see both sides of that and also see the program change over time. And so getting an opportunity to put my imprint on that and make it better for both mentors and apprentices is a really exciting opportunity. Yeah, I think it's a wonderful program. I actually... I'm surprised that this is true, but I had my first apprentice that I was working with just earlier this year. So I'd actually made it somehow five years into this whole game without having worked with an apprentice. But I really enjoyed getting to work with the individual and help them sort of grow along and, and do things. But it also was an interesting forcing function for me. It made me think out loud. It made me say why I believed things. And in some cases, I was like, huh, I don't know why. Never mind. Don't listen to that. I have no reason to say that. I said it very confidently, but I actually don't believe that. Uh, and I think it really is uh, similar to pairing in general. That idea of communication helps clarify things. And it's just such a wonderful way for everyone involved to get better and grow and collaborate and all of those wonderful things. So do you have any particular plans around what you're going to do with the Apprentice program? Any structural changes? Any what's wh What are you going to do? Uh, there's a few changes that we want to make. We want to look at some of the messaging around uh, Apprentice where... We get a lot of interest from people who are junior developers looking for that entry-level first job, and that's not really what the apprenticeship is. People think of it as sort of an internship, but it's designed for people who already have some industry experience and want to transition into a senior role. So it's very much a build a senior programmer such that after a couple months, they could then work for one of our clients as a consulting senior developer. Right. I think most of the cases that I've seen it there, when candidates come in, we might identify one or two areas that we consider absolute requirements to be a full-time billing client developer. Uh, but we see that there's a lot of like, oh, you've definitely got Rails down really solidly. 
you could use more work on TDD, and it would be nice if we had one JavaScript framework or a little more familiarity with JavaScript. But we think over the course of three months, we can work with you, level up those skills, work from the strong foundation of Rails that you already have, and be able to get you to a place that we're ready to put you onto a client project. Right. Or sometimes even it's you have a strong technical background, but you really struggle with more of the consulting side of things. Yeah, I think that's probably the most common one. There's generally some aspect of technical skills we're also trying to fill in. But yes, we always try to focus on uh, consulting skills as well. And the way the program works is uh, an apprentice generally comes on for three months. They're paired up with a mentor, three different mentors, one every month. And the two will then work together on the mentor's project. So when you say the mentor's project, you mean the the client project that the mentor is working on? Correct. Yes. Right. And so the mentee will, or the apprentice rather, will not bill on that client project. They're just there sort of along for the ride. But ideally, particularly towards the end of an apprenticeship, they'll be working on actual client-facing features and, and picking up tickets from the tracker and actually doing work on the client project as well. That's right. We also have the concept of the breakable toy. That's still around, right? That We're still, still around. doing that. Um, do you want to explain roughly what that is? So the idea of a breakable toy is that it's, you don't necessarily want to just experiment with new techniques in client code because you know, that, that's not a good consulting thing to do. I like how you said you don't necessarily. <laughs> but yes, please continue. Yes, don't try random things in client code. But if you're trying to learn a new technique, it can often be good to have like a small sample app that you try this thing on. Uh, so maybe you're trying to get familiar with a particular design pattern or you want to learn a, n- a new framework or something like that. So you stand up a simple application and try to get that done to learn the technique. And so it's completely okay to break things there. The only purpose of this application is as a learning tool. Breakable toys for apprentices, sometimes instead of working on a particular client project, if they're, say, learning about the strategy pattern, then their mentor might say, hey, you, sh- you know, why don't you build a small app that does this particular piece of functionality built around uh, the strategy pattern. So I did one when I was uh, an apprentice. It was, in fact, around the strategy pattern. Uh, I think it had to do with all sorts of different media embeds. So something that could have like a YouTube embed or a Vimeo embed or an audio embed. It was like four or five different things I had to handle with different strategies. Makes sense. Do you remember what the actual, what the app did? I think it, it might have been like a simple forum. And so, I love that you don't remember the end user functionality of this thing, but you do remember the architectural pattern that you learned from it. I think that's perfect. That's exactly what it's for. I just like that that anecdote has fully played out in your world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think it was a, a forum. The idea of the the breakable toy and the like specific breakability of it, that the thing that it is doesn't really matter and that the goal is to learn. It's a thing that I struggle with my own personal, uh, like in my side projects and things, because simultaneously, I occasionally want to build a piece of software because I want it to exist. I want to track some aspect of my life or I want to automate something or whatever it may be. And then at the same time, I often want to learn new technologies. I want to play around with React or GraphQL or or what have you. And I've personally found a lot of value in trying to more clearly delineate those two things. Am I trying to build a thing that is useful? If so, boring technologies, things that I know inside and out. Or am I trying to learn new things? If so, go crazy, but probably don't expect the end product to be something that I will continue using. When you're doing these more breakable toy style applications or pieces of code, is that it is 100% okay not to complete it. I know some people feel guilt around not completing projects, 
But if the goal of the project is not to ship something useful, but to act as a vehicle for learning, then as long as you've learned something along the way, that piece of code or application has fulfilled its purpose, regardless of whether or not you ship it and it goes live. Sounds like almost a beautiful life lesson in that, too. And speaking from experience, I'm a chronic, not completing my side projects kind of person. But most of them are more in that breakable toy style arena. Right. So I'm generally okay with that. On the other hand, I've recently participated in a few game jams that have very much this idea of completion, but with a tight deadline. So they'll say, okay, over the course of a month, build a thing. And then regardless of how complete it is, you just have to ship it and it has to be sort of publicly available. So... That's been a whole different set of constraints, and it's been interesting to work with. Obviously, those have been learning experiences because I've not built games before doing these game jams. But now that I've gone through it, it also has that pressure of of shipping something. Well, with that, I think we've reached a pretty good stopping point. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. Thank you for having me on. And if anyone is interested in finding out more about what Joel is doing on the internets, uh, we will link up his Twitter and also his personal page on the blog, which as an aside, Joel runs our blog, uh, does an amazing job of that, and also is an absolutely prolific author, writing uh, probably the most blog posts in the company at this point. Getting up there. Okay. There's still probably Gabe. Is it Gabe? Gabe is probably number one. (laughs) But someday, someday you will take that throne. And really, uh, you do an incredible job of finding interesting topics, expressing them clearly, even including diagrams. I'm always impressed by the diagrams you do. I'm a very visual person. I often find that to understand a problem, I need to draw it. You actually have a great post on that very topic. I do. Which we should we will link, link it in up. the show notes. I'm a big fan of that one. All right. Well, thanks again, Joel. Show notes can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 173. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.